Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, my family and I were at Cascades Camp, which is a covenant campground down by Yelm in the foothills of uh, Mount Rainier. And uh, we were down there for what we do annually. It, is that, it's a pastor and family retreat for uh, our conference. So uh, all the clergy and their families get together once a year, and it's for rest and renewal. And usually they have some like continuing ed stuff, like a speaker that they bring in um, to stimulate our minds and, and our hearts and things like that. So this year, the speaker was this guy named Chap Clark, and Chap Clark is a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary's Seattle branch, and he's an expert in uh, sociology, in particularly in adolescent development and how that interplays with the church. You may have heard of Chap Clark through his book Sticky Faith and other materials like that. Well, anyway, one of the things that Chap Clark was talking about at this conference uh, was how families and individuals and children, adolescents in particular, are becoming more and more atomized, fragmented from society. Rather than identifying themselves maybe with a, a, a solid family or a particular ideology or a particular socio, uh, sociographical group like a church or a club, uh, Kids are finding less and less identity in those things and more and more having to morph into whatever situation they're in. So after studying hundreds of teens over the past few years, Chap uh, Clark recognized a disturbing trend. And that is that many young adults today are able to morph their identity to match like a chameleon whatever social setting they're in. So he was talking about like youth group kids. He says it's quite common now for like a youth group kid to be a student leader on a Wednesday night youth group and to sincerely like make a covenant of, you know, I'm not going to uh, have sex before marriage and I'm not going to like drink alcohol and all this kind of stuff, right? Completely normal for a kid to have a sincere statement of faith, student leadership, all that. Then on Thursday, when he or she is with the basketball team that they play with, to completely be a different person and to maybe make sexist or racist remarks about other kids. And then on Friday to go out binge drinking and to not have even a tinge of guilt about the stuff that they said on Wednesday. And he talks about this phenomenon of, of being just so fragmented that... It's almost as though a, a person is spiritually homeless in a way, to not have a rooted point of anchoring. And as I'm listening to this, not yet having adolescence and being freaked out that I'm going to someday, uh, I was thinking how this isn't just true for adolescent development, that this is true, at least in my experience, for many of us as well. This is true of the human experience. It's a human problem that we have, in a sense, become homeless and un unrooted. So, yes, being a teenager is very awkward. But you know what else is awkward? Being a new parent, very awkward. Ask Collins. He's freaked out. He doesn't even have a kid yet. Okay? You know what else is awkward? Being a newlywed and trying to figure out what's what and who's who. Being married without children in a season when everyone else around you is popping out children is awkward, makes you feel rootless and homeless. Being single and celibate in an oversexed world designed for either for married people or playas is difficult. Where do you fit in? Being newly retired and trying to figure out who you are now that you don't feel productive in the world is an awkward time of life. We feel homeless on our own skin when we struggle in our careers, and we just hope that nobody actually realizes that we don't know what we're doing half the time. 
We feel out of place in our own shoes when we come to church and we wonder, is everyone else as lonely as I am in this big crowd? Or we wonder, is that person really that put together or is it just me? To be homeless in our own skin is a human problem. And it was a problem for Moses, as we've seen so far in this journey through Exodus we're on together. Last week, uh, we were introduced to Moses as an adult for the first time. Previously, he was just this baby in the, in the river, and they scooped him out. Last week, he became an adult overnight, uh, just how the story goes. Uh, in that story, Moses, uh, of course, was born as a Hebrew boy, uh, nursed by his mom for probably three and a half years, and then he goes to school and to live in the house of an Egyptian. Having been adopted by an Egyptian princess, he's raised at an Egyptian school for nobility, training him in literature and history and mathematics, warfare, strategic stuff, and hand-to-hand combat, foreign policy, all of this stuff. Think about that. What an odd reality to be raised with this great education in one of the most powerful nations in the ancient Near East, and yet to identify yourself with being part of this Hebrew slave class. As the story goes, Moses is going to see this Egyptian beating and abusing a Hebrew slave. Moses goes out, looks both ways, makes sure no one is watching, and he kills the Egyptian, hides him in the sand, thinks he's gotten away with it. We see this sense of justice that Moses has, this passion to protect, and yet He can't yet marshal his emotions. He lets his passions get the best of him. And so the next day, Moses goes out, and he sees two of his Hebrew brothers quarreling with each other. He tries to intervene and break it up. And first of all, they don't accept his intervention. They see him as one of the enemy. They view him as an Egyptian, one not to be trusted. And secondly, Moses realizes now, oh my goodness, they know what I've done. Who else knows what I've done? His secret is out of the bag. His murder is now known to everyone. And that's where we pick up the story of Moses in Exodus this evening. And what I want to do is give our text tonight three readings. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it three times. I'll read it once, but I want to give it three readings, three different layers of meaning. First, we're going to walk through it together and just take note of some of the contextual features of the story. And then on the second and third readings, I want to take note of some motifs that we see in the story that are going to have implications for us as followers of Jesus. All right, so we're going to begin in verse 15. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to follow along. We're in Exodus chapter 2. And I'm just going to read a couple verses, talk, a couple verses, talk. We'll mix it up a little bit different than normal, all right? story starts like this. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, and he's talking about the murder, right? So he knows what Moses has done. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, Moses, as we looked at last week, was born into a hostile world. He was, before he was even born, he was supposed to never live. Pharaoh wanted every Hebrew boy tossed into the Nile. Moses had already escaped death one time, and now he's on the run from Pharaoh again. 
He travels hundreds of miles away from Egypt into the land of Midian, which at the time was probably occupied by five major nomadic communities. These are the descendants of Abraham and Keturah. And when he's traveling through Midian, Moses sits down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs of water uh, for their father's flock. Then shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So we're introduced kind of to these seven women who have a dad who's this Ruel guy who's the priest of Midian. And we don't know what God or God sees the priest of, but we know he's not the priest of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's got these daughters, seven that we learn about, who are shepherdesses, and they are hard at work watering their father's flock. I mean, this is not easy stuff in a cistern-type well to draw up enough water fill these water troughs for a whole flock of animals. And they do all this work, and then some jerk shepherds come by and move these women aside. They bullied them. And once again, we're introduced to Moses' sense of justice. He He has a heart for the weak. The text says that he stood up and he helped these women. Literally, it says that he saved them. The text doesn't say whether he fought them off or whether he just had that thousand-yard stare like, you better not mess with me. I, I tell my small group, I always love to imagine this scene like a scene from The Matrix where Moses jumps up in slow-mo and like roundhouse kicks 17 guys or something, but that's just me and I'm violent. So, you know. uh, but it, what we do know about Moses is that he was trained in this Egyptian upbringing for nobility. So he would be a bad dude with his hands. I mean, three, four shepherds could not be a match for a guy of Moses' training. However it happened, just go silly in your imagination. Do, do whatever you want. Moses was enough to get these dudes away from the women. So Moses uh, saves them, and then he ends up watering their flock. It's important to notice That this future leader of Israel has a heart of compassion, a sense of justice for the weak. And this time, he didn't kill anybody. He was able to to marshal his resources and have justice in an appropriate way without crushing somebody else. He's almost ready to lead the people of God, but not quite yet. Enter verses 18 through 22. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what's more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with this man, and he gave him Zipporah to Moses, his daughter. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In just a few verses, we go from Moses, dejected, (laughs) sitting at the well, on the run for his life in a foreign land, to Moses enjoying the hospitality of a stranger and getting to marry one of this guy's daughters. Moses will become a shepherd. He will tend Ruel's flock. He marries Zipporah, the Midianite. He has a son named Gershom, which could be loosely translated an alien here. For approximately 40 years, Moses will live within the simple rhythms of sheep shearing, 
sheep breeding, and sheep birthing. Repeat. He will come to learn the lay of the land, where to take his flocks in the dry season to find pasture, where to take them in the moist winter season. He will learn well to know his wife under the watchful eye of her father, his father-in-law. He'll learn patience. He'll learn to compromise. And to an aristocratic Egyptian or snobby 21st century American, Moses has a life now that has become dull and ordinary, unworthy of note, pedestrian. But there is one who matters, who takes note of Moses. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, knows now that the time is right. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The stage is set. The political situation has changed in Egypt with the death of one pharaoh and the rise of another. And as we're going to see in chapter 3, Moses has become more uh, than an ordinary person, more than a boring man, more than a patient man. He's become a man who God can use to lead his people. But that's next week. Anyway, so God hears the groaning of these enslaved Israelites. He remembers his covenant. He sees their oppressed state of being, and he takes notice of them. In this first reading of the text then, we see a Moses in process. And while he may have given up any dreams he had of being this leader who's going to use his Egyptian authority and position to save his people, God has not forgotten those dreams. And while Moses may have thought that his life was forever altered and changed, he had no idea just how much God was going to prove him right and in a completely unexpected way. And I, for one, take great comfort in the God of this story because most of my life and most of your life, and this is not, I'm not trying to offend you, it's pretty boring. Most of our lives is actually pretty boring. Most of the Bible stories that we have are like the highlight reel of cool stuff that happens, but we don't get the stuff in between. Take Noah, for example. We get three chapters about Noah. God comes and tells Noah to build an ark. Noah builds the ark. All these animals miraculously come onto the ark. Flood comes, Noah saved. Bam! It's just like all these highlights. But there's nothing in those scriptures about how Moses almost got a stinking divorce because, because he put his family in debt building a boat in the backyard. Guys, how many hobbies do you have in the backyard where you know, it's a source of contention? So it, the Bible doesn't tell us about how Moses maybe lost some of his friends who thought he was crazy building a boat in the desert. The Bible doesn't tell us about all of those years and and, and, and hitting his fingers and splinters and building this ark. It doesn't tell us about any crises of faith that Noah might have had. God, did I really hear you right? Because you told me something and it's been years and I'm still working. Are you really meaning me to do this or am I going insane? Most of life, most of real life, 
is spent in the monotony of life. And I think sometimes television, highlight reels, stories, even the Bible stories can sometimes dupe us into thinking that life should always be spectacular, that it should always be a hop from one great experience to another magical experience all the time. Like a sitcom where a whole day of a person's life is crammed into 48 minutes plus commercials. How many sitcoms do you watch that are filled with people sleeping or going to the bathroom or doing their hair or chasing their kids around trying to get their clothes on and when you get this shoe on, the other one's throwing their shoe down the stairs. That's the stuff of real life. That's monotony. That's where most of actual life happens. You can't sell a lot of commercial airtime showing those kind of shows. Don't underestimate the God who blesses the everyday experience as part of your character development. Don't get fooled into thinking uh, that you have to do a bunch of special things in special places for them to count as special or holy. If anything, we see in this story that God is a God who's present in the ordinary. So those of you who think that your spiritual life is on hold because now you have small children in the house... What if God was building your character and your Christ-likeness with every diaper change? And every time you get a glass of water for that whiny three-year-old every night, it was shaping somehow your character and your ability uh, to give when it doesn't feel good to give. Those of you who think your spiritual life is on hold um, because you're a student and you're just bidding your time until you can graduate and get a real job where you'll really count? What if God is working in your character through the monotony and hard work of study? And what if he's got you in that class that you're in so that you could be a blessing to the people around you? And what if, Christian brothers and sisters, you're not always the one who has to shine for everyone else? What if you're there to receive a blessing from God from somebody else? Those in retirement, don't think that your time has come and gone. What if God wants to show you how your experience and your wisdom and your perspective and, hey, also your vulnerability? You know, sometimes I think we put older people up on a pedestal and it's intimidating for them because we expect them to have all this special wisdom or something. My favorite people that have walked through life, and my dad is one of these people, it's he's more vulnerable than he's ever been too, which makes his wisdom easier to receive. And it kind of shatters this idolatry we might have of someday I'm going to be great like so-and-so. You know what? People are people are people. We need to hear those stories, wonderful, retired people. We need to hear that it's going to be okay, that life isn't always perfect. We need to hear that you still have struggles too. That makes us more human. God is the God who is every bit as present in the ordinary as he is in the highlight reels, okay? So that's kind of the first reading of the text. How about that? Second reading, I want us to consider this motif that I see uh, of rejection and acceptance in this story. Before Moses was even born, Pharaoh instituted a decree that all male Hebrew babies should be thrown into the Nile River. Moses was born into a world that did not want him to be alive. 
He was born as a Hebrew, raised in an Egyptian home, received an Egyptian education, but identified himself as a Hebrew person. It's evident when he goes out and sees an Egyptian abusing one of his Hebrew brothers. Okay? He doesn't say an Egyptian brother abusing a Hebrew person. So he identifies as a Hebrew man. But when he came time to intervene between two Hebrew men fighting each other, they rejected him. They did not see him as a brother. And then Pharaoh, the house that he grew up in, tries to kill him. Now Moses is truly lost. He was wanted for murder by the Egyptians, but rejected by his own biological people, his own ethnic people. So he goes to Midian, where seven daughters of this pagan priest, Ruel, describe him to their father as an Egyptian. Can the guy get a break? He even ends up marrying Zipporah and has a son and names this kid Gershom, which could be translated an alien there. Like you name your, this guy's got an identity crisis, don't you think? You name your kid an alien there. The twist in the story comes when Ruel, the pagan priest of Midian, shows Moses true hospitality by not only bringing him into his home, but into his family. There's a difference between just letting somebody hang out with you in really accepting them into the fold. Check this out. Moses, the most famous and respected of Israel's leaders, debatedly, David's up there too, but anyway, he's a big gun. He's married to a foreign woman. And you know how the Bible's so big on, 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 on bloodline and all that, and the Pharisees and Jesus, they were really big on this lineage. Look at Moses. He's married to Zipporah, uh, the daughter of a pagan priest. You know, in centuries to come, the Midianites would be one of Israel's worst enemies. And yet, as part of Israel's national history, it was the Midianites who showed Moses true hospitality. And this motif runs throughout the Bible. I, I think of, uh, of King David. He's anointed uh, a king by the prophet Samuel. And then the leader of Israel, King Saul, tries to kill David. He's rejected by his own people. Where does he go to find hospitality? Philistines. He goes to the Philistines. And there, one time, a Philistine king was uh, accusing David uh, of being treacherous, and another Philistine king, the main Philistine king, said, no, I vouch for David. He's one of us. I mean, this, these, they really accepted David. Years later, when David actually took the throne of Israel, it talks about those inner band of mighty men that David had, like the guy who, you know, kills 800 dudes with one spear on. You know who those mighty men are? They're not Hebrew people. They're foreigners. There's this interplay of some of Israel's most famous people being rejected by their own and been shown hospitality by foreigners. And of course, Jesus is introduced to us in Matthew chapter 1 as having foreign blood in his family tree. He's born into a world where the king of his people, King Herod, wants to try and kill him. And yet, pagan magi from the east come and bow before him and worship him. During his ministry, Jesus is rejected by Jewish leaders, but accepted by many Gentiles, and accepted by the poor, and accepted by the lowly. And I think there's at least two implications here. I'm only going to talk about two. First, are we showing Jesus hospitality? 
Sometimes in the church, we tend to dilute the message of Jesus a bit. We love to speak about his love and his grace and his salvation for everyone. And these things are true. That is good news of, the, of Jesus. But Jesus wasn't rejected by religious leaders for being too loving. And he wasn't hung on a cross by the Romans for being too nice. Jesus was rejected and crucified because he offended people by telling them they needed a savior in the first place. For the poor in spirit and the humble and the childlike, those who know their desperate need, Jesus is very good news. But for those who are not willing to consider their need for a savior, there's no room in their hearts. For those who are too drunk on their own autonomy and power, there's no room for a new king. Are we showing Jesus hospitality? By saying, yes, Lord, have reign over my heart. Have sway over my decision making. So I ask the question, what do you do with Jesus? Have you let his forgiveness touch the deepest recesses of your heart? And does his lordship take priority in your life? And I know for every one of us, right, the answer to that question is mixed. Yes and no. Sometimes depends. More than putting you and me on the spot with that question, what I'm saying is, and what I'm wrestling with myself is, what is the next step? What is the next thing to die to for me, for you? And only you know that. The Holy Spirit will help you. Are we showing Jesus hospitality? That's the first implication, I think, of this motif of rejection and acceptance. The second implication is aimed at those who themselves feel homeless, lost, like aliens in our own skin. And it's to the second second implication I want to turn now uh, by looking at the third reading of this text. Now, I know that this is all like third reading, second reading, so check this out. I'm going to do something that I used to hate when pastors would do, but what I want to give you the sense of being uh, a sojourner like Moses in an exile, please stand up and switch seats. <laughs> Cross the aisle, switch rows. It, it's really just to help you wake up, but <laughs> see how your perspective might change. I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. All right, look, I even changed spots. There are certain scenes in literature or film that are just iconic. It doesn't matter what the book is or what the film is, but if there's certain pieces of the setting, certain music maybe, you know or expect what's about to happen. So for example, if I were to say once upon a time, two young children are walking on a, on a, a trail in a wood, and up comes a fox wearing a top hat and a tweed blazer and introduces himself to said children. You would know right away, this is a fable because foxes only talk in fables and this is not going to be good. The children should not trust whatever the fox has to say, right? This is common fable knowledge, right? Like foxes are rarely good in those types of stories, right? Or if you're watching a film noir, uh, you've got a 
group of college co-eds on a rainy, stormy night out at a lake cabin in the wilderness, right? The lights go out. I think I heard the shed door open, says one of the smallest and most petite young ladies. And I know, I'll go check on it by myself. And you know, this is not a good idea. Because what I'm going to hear next is this blood-curdling B-rated horror movie scream and some dude with a big knife or something. You just know that that scene is supposed to end that way, right? Maybe, maybe you don't. You shouldn't watch horror. Yeah. Well, there's certain stories like that in the Bible as well. When Moses sits down by a well and then meets women and, like, waters their flocks, ding, 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 our radar goes up. Where have I seen this before in the Bible, right? In Genesis 24, the servant of Abraham goes east to find a wife for Isaac. He stops at a well, and there he meets Rebekah, who waters his animals, shows him hospitality, invites her into the ho- him into the home, and it's at the well where we meet Isaac's future wife. Pretty cool, huh? Then in Genesis 29, Jacob is fleeing for his life. Where does he go? East, ends up at a well, and there he overcomes an obstacle, moves the stone. He waters the flock of a young woman named Rachel. Rachel shows him hospitality. He gets married. Hmm, there's a trend here. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses is fleeing for his life. He heads east, ends up at a well, overcomes an obstacle, shepherd dudes, meets a woman, waters her flock, is shown hospitality, gets a wife. There's a trend. Moses is always a foreigner, always a foreigner, always a sojourner. Even after the exodus from Egypt, Moses will be wandering in the desert, and that's where he'll die. He never reaches the promised land. And I think that that unfinished business of Moses, as great as a leader as he was for Israel, his life ends with unfinished business. And I think as Christians, that unfinished business points us to the story of Jesus. Joan read from the Gospel of John, in which Jesus talks of traveling to a foreign land named Samaria. And there he stops at a well, and whom should he happen upon but a woman of mixed descent, or race. A woman outside the line of Israel, outside the covenant. Not only is this woman outside the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but she was despised even by her own people. She's living in sin with a man, had had five previous husbands. She was literally Gershom among her people, an alien here. Not really at home, even amongst her own kin, her her own kind. We know this. She goes out to the well in the heat of the day. No one draws water in the heat of the day. They go in the morning, the evening. It's suspected that she does this to avoid the other town women who would gossip about her and treat her poorly. And Jesus offers this woman living water. And here, to the astute reader who grew up, you know, you're listening to the story of Jesus as a young Jewish person, as a first century audience, you know the story of Abraham And Isaac and Jacob, Moses, meeting their wives at a well. And here we realize that Jesus is playing on this convention of wells where you meet wives, but he's going to do something different with it, something unexpected. Because Jesus here isn't looking for a human wife, for one woman. He's here opening up, sharing how he's opening himself up for the world. Sometimes we use this language, the bride of Christ being the church. He's opening his heart up, not to one woman, but to you and to me.
Jesus went to the well to find a bride. But not a Samaritan bride, not a Jewish bride. He came to draw us to himself. All who believe that we could become his people, his family, otherwise known as his church. I am struck by the lostness of this woman in the story of Jesus in John 4. She realizes that Jesus is someone special, right? How would you know all that stuff about my husband, my marital situation? So she says, hey, I just want to know, like, you're somebody with the Jewish faith. You know, our people taught us that you worship here, and you guys say it's in Jerusalem. What's the deal? And Jesus, Jesus kind of gets all heady on her, I think. Like, well, one day you're going to worship in spirit and truth and all this stuff. And, and it just, I don't think it connects with her, where she's at. I mean, think about how, how much pain she's in. She's, she's basically unwanted. She's probably with the guy she's with because he's the only guy that would take her. And what Jesus is saying about all this worship and spirit and truth is it's not connecting at ground level. It's not really going to matter to her. And I and imagine, now I'm totally making this up, I imagine in the tone of her voice, she says these words. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And this is how I imagine her saying this. Dejected, hearing Jesus' words, but realizing they're not really touching home and saying it, I know Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. In other words, when the Savior comes, I believe he can make sense of the mess that I'm in. To which Jesus replies, I who speak to you am he. How is it that Moses is considered the greatest leader in Israel's history, and yet he's a perpetual sojourner in foreign lands, has no great castle and no great house, never lived to see the goal of his ministry, which was getting to the promised land? He was always dealing with his own people's rejection always nagging his leadership, always challenging him. How could he be such a great leader in those circumstances? I believe it's because Moses came to find his true identity in God and not the externals of his life. You may not feel put together. You aren't. You might feel like a sojourner in a foreign land, maybe even in your own skin. To a large degree, you are. So how then do we find life? We come to the well of Jesus, who ever lives and reigns and invites us to come find life in him. And I want to encourage us to pray with me to come find life in him now. Lord of the ordinary and the spectacular. Thank you for meeting us in our ordinariness and what we might consider boring, what the world might consider the boring parts of our life. Thank you that there is no area of life untouched by you, unblessed by you, 
I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see you in the mundane and to rejoice in some of those mundane rhythms that are part of our life. Savior from sin and Lord over our lives, would you be those things magnified in us? Save us, Lord. Lord, save us not only from the consequences of our sin, but save us from the hooks of sin uh, that are in our flesh. Like dogs returning to vomit, Lord, so many of us return to the same cycles and the same self-defeating activities and thought processes. Pray, Lord, for an exodus from those destructive behaviors and ways of thinking and ways of coping. Lord, have mercy. And Lord, help us to surrender. Holy Spirit, help us to surrender. To daily die a little bit more that Jesus could reign all the more in our lives. And well of living water. Help us to find our true home in you. To not judge whether or not we're home by the externals or by whether or not we happen to be happy at a particular moment. But help us to know with great assurance that we are adopted children into your family, received and accepted by the Father, the Creator, through the Son, sustained by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray these ideas and these thoughts, knowing that they will just be ideas and thoughts if you don't animate them and make them come true in our lives and in our minds. We're praying for a miracle, Holy Spirit. Help us to trust you day after day. Amen.